time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Time for a lot of different things, aren't there? Then if you jump down to verse 11 of that same chapter, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And I want to read that last verse in a couple of other versions just to give us a a clear idea of what the writer is saying here. This is from the New Century Version. God has given them a desire to know the future. He does everything just right and on time, but people can never completely understand what he, God, is doing. And then from the new living, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. How true. What an amazing statement. The writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us that God has made everything fit where it is supposed to fit in its time. It's all done just right and at the right time. That's what God does. God is aware of everything, even the very moments of our lives, and and knows exactly how those moments are to fit into the bigger picture, which we fail to grasp. The list of activities and circumstances that the writer lists tell me of God's care and concern for even the infinitesimal details of our lives, even the very smallest things. Yet in the same sense, the God who knows the moments of our lives has set eternity in our hearts. It's a picture of God knowing the very smallest, the most minute details of our lives and being in in control of those things through his sovereignty But in contrast, it is the picture of God saying, I have set eternity, the big picture, in their hearts. So it's the big picture and the small picture all brought together. How does that relate to Christmas? Well, Luke chapter 2 verse 6 tells us of God's timing in Mary's pregnancy. It says the time came for the baby to be born. In other words, The nine months were over. This was the timing of God in the details of life. And again, from Galatians 4, it says, But when the time had fully come. This is the timing of God and His eternal plan. This is God being able to see us in the moments. And God being able to see us in the whole scope of eternity. So I want to take a look today at this passage that Gail read for us, at Mary and Joseph. And as we look at them, we see that God's timing in their lives may have been inconvenient and may have seemed all wrong to them. I mean, was this really the right time to have a child on this? You're not, well, we're going to talk about that. Let's, let's look at some examples. First of all, their marriage was not consummated. Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 tell us that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home 
as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. <coughs> we need to understand some things about Jewish marriage practice or tradition. See, there was a time when they were engaged, betrothed to one another, and in the eyes of the Jews, you were, you were married at that point. Remember, the, the scripture tells us that Joseph considered divorce, divorcing Mary quietly. It's because legally they were already married even though they were not living together and the marriage had not been consummated at this point. And when God comes to Joseph through an angel in a dream and tells him, take Mary as your wife, what's happened in her is the work of the Holy Spirit. Mary ta- uh, Joseph takes Mary home to be his wife but does not consummate the marriage in honor of what the Holy Spirit has done in her. And then number two, the census has totally disrupted their plans. Can you imagine? To return to Joseph's ancestral home meant packing up and leaving home. It meant leaving business. It meant leaving friends and family in Nazareth behind late in Mary's pregnancy. And number three, Bethlehem is far from home and there's no support system there that we know of. It was 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In all the images of the journey to Bethlehem, what do we see Mary doing? She's riding on a donkey, right? But the scripture doesn't tell us that. That's one of those things we've kind of woven in the Christmas story we really don't know about. Actually, it's very likely that they walked that entire distance. And they went to a town where they knew no one. And then fourth, there's inadequate housing. Bethlehem is just this little burg. And there's this big influx of people returning to the home of their ancestry. So there's this big influx into this little town And there are a limited number of places to stay. There's maybe only one or two hotels in the whole town. And it's first come, first served. And so you needed to arrive early to get a room. And by the time Mary and Joseph got there, all the signs on the hotels said, no vacancy. Wow. What lousy timing. In the light of God's timing, though, in the light, of, excuse me, of God's prophecy, his timing was perfect. The Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, we're told. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. First book of the Bible. Jacob gathers his 12 sons who will be the fathers of the tribes of Israel and begins to prophesy concerning their futures. And when he addresses his fourth son, Judah... He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to until he comes to whom in belongs the obedience of the nations is his. Did I read that right? Yes, I did. Literally, the prophecy here was saying that the Messiah would come out of the tribe of Judah. That's the bottom line whether I read it correctly or not. And then, moving well forward in the span of time, when the angel came to Mary 
in Luke chapter 1, verse 33, speaking of the baby she would give birth to, the angel said, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So in the light of prophecy, God's timing was perfect. The second thing in the light of prophecy, the Messiah would come from the house of David. Ten centuries before the birth of Jesus, King David wanted to build a temple for God. Do you remember that story? He desired to build a temple. And God said, no, you are a man of war. Your son Solomon will build the temple. And David was disappointed that he was not going to be able to do that. And in response, God told him through the prophet Nathan that it would be from his house and lineage that the Messiah would come. In 2 Samuel 7.16, this is the message the prophet gave to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The only way that that could happen was through the Messiah. And it's affirmed by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's what Kathy read earlier. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then again, the angel messenger to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. Again, speaking of the baby that she will give birth to. And he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Right on, God. And did you know that both Joseph and Mary were descended from the line of David? If you look at the genealogies listed in Matthew and Luke, they are quite different from King David to Jesus. That's because... Matthew traces the genealogy uh, through Joseph's line. He was Jesus' legal father, so he traces it through, through Joseph's line. But Luke traces the genealogy from David to Jesus through Mary's line. She was actually Jesus' blood relative. The line of David actually came through Mary. And then God's perfect timing and prophecy, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14. The, the virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. There were some pretty miraculous births as you read through the scripture, but this is the only one where a virgin gave birth. Mary And Mary, in response to the angel's message that she would give birth to the Messiah, said this in Luke 1, 34 and 35. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. A virgin birth. 
And then God's timing in, in prophecy was perfect in that the Messiah, he said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Pro, the prophet Micah said in chapter 5, verse 2 of his prophecy, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then if we go to Luke chapter 2, verse 4, from the, from the passage that Gail read today, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And that's where Jesus was born. By the way, do you remember a little later on, um, you know, as Jesus was engaged in his ministry, there were times where the, the religious leaders would say, well, this guy didn't come from the place where the prophet said he would come from. He's from Nazareth. They didn't realize that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. And then it's prophesied according to God's perfect timing that the Messiah would be visited and honored by wise men or kings. Isaiah 60, verses 3 and 6. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Sounds familiar. In Psalm 72.10, May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May, be, may the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. So in the light of prophecy, God was right on time and in the right place. But even more significant is the timing of Christ's birth and what we know about history. No wonder Paul said again in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So in the light of history, God's timing was perfect. And here's why. First of all, at this point in history, there was the scattering of the Jewish people in the Mediterranean basin. It's what we call the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. Not long before the birth of Christ, the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. This is a very significant event. See, these God-fearing, Jehovah-worshipping people were spread across the territory controlled by Rome. It was in those communities where Jews settled that once Jesus had ascended to heaven and evangelism began to take place, it was in those communities where there were God-fearing Jews that the seeds were planted and flourished concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the diaspora, God's timing in history. There was... Number two, there was a favorable legal environment when Jesus came. The Roman Empire was massive. They had conquered different peoples and nationalities and many different religions. And they were quite tolerant of these different religions with one exception. They all had to proclaim that Caesar was God. One area 
That was one area where the Romans were very intolerant. If you were under Roman rule, you will worship Caesar as God. That's how it was supposed to be. And it worked with every religious sect except the Jews. And they would not give in. It got so bad that after years of killing and intimidation, the Romans finally made an exemption for the Jews. They gave up. Now, now here we see the perfect timing of God. The Jews no longer had to proclaim Caesar as God. And here comes the birth of Jesus. And for the first 70 years after the death of Jesus, the Roman Empire did not distinguish the difference between the Jewish religion and Christianity. They lumped the Jews and Christians together in the same pot. And so for the first 70 years until the destruction of Jerusalem, for the first 70 years, Christianity was being birthed in all the communities throughout the Roman Empire, and they were allowing the exemption for Christians as well as Jews Because they didn't get the difference. So Christians were not required to proclaim Caesar as God either. And by the time they recognized the difference, it was too late. Christianity had taken root all across the Roman Empire. Well, number three, there was a favorable political climate. Julius Caesar... Under Julius Caesar, there was more civil war than under any other Roman emperor. At the close of his reign, Augustus Caesar came to power about 25 years before the birth of Jesus. Under Augustus, there was peace in the empire that lasted for the next two centuries. And in that peace, all kinds of good things happened. One thing that happened was they began to build roads all over the empire and travel became safer and they instituted a Roman highway patrol to help make travel safer. And so now it was safe to travel throughout the empire and people like Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Titus and Timothy could spread the news throughout the empire and do it and travel relatively safely because of the political climate at that point. Number four, there was a favorable cultural climate. Because of what Alexander the Great had done to conquer so much territory... Everyone spoke a common Greek language. That's why many of the New Testament books were written in Greek. Because those people who received those New Testament letters, especially from Paul, understood Greek. That would not be true today. If those letters were written today to Galatians and Ephesians, they would be written in Turkish. Corinthians and Thessalonians would still be written in Greek. Romans would be written in Italian. Hebrews, of course, would be written in Hebrew. And then there was a favorable, favorable philosophical climate. Plato, Aristotle, and other Greek philosophers had done a better job of raising questions than answering them. 
Christianity was like a refreshing breeze. It's been said that the Greek philosophers plowed the fields. Christianity came into those cultivated, plowed, fertile minds and sowed the seeds of the truth of the gospel. They had answers. See, folks, what we call the first Christmas was all about God's timing. Those things that some might perceive as coincidences, the timing of Mary's pregnancy with the census and the trip to Bethlehem were just as God had planned. And the same is true of the circumstances that happen in our lives. One of the great things about going to heaven someday is that we will understand how God used all those little coincidences in our lives for his greater purposes. You know, I've said uh, before that um, Julie and I came to be your pastor by accident. We know that's not true. In fact, I, I, I tell people sometimes I came into the ministry by accident. <clears throat> I did come in later. I've been uh, teaching school um, I taught at a high school. I taught a bio, biology chemistry split. I should have been teaching biology. I probably shouldn't have been teaching chemistry. But <clears throat> and um, I'd done a one-year. I had a one-year contract. I was actually taking the place of my cousin, um, who was out. She was. She was. Uh, she had a baby that year, and so took a year off. So at the end of that year, I had to look for another job because she was going to come back. And so there was an opening for a physical science job in a middle school in the district. I applied, and they said, you've got the job. I went and interviewed, all that stuff. And they said, we'll send you the paperwork in the mail. And it didn't come, and it didn't come, and it didn't come. And I finally called the district office, and I said, hey, what's up? And they said, oh, we hired somebody else who had a physical science degree. I said, thanks for telling me. So here we are just weeks away from the new school year, and there was nothing. I couldn't find anything. And a guy in our church had a, uh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I've seen him around here, but they're the big, fat, tired fertilizer spreading machines that got across okay. And um, he wanted somebody to move to Eastern Oregon to uh, run his business there. He was expanding. And I needed to support my family, and I said, okay, I'll do it. We moved to Hermiston, Oregon. There was a stretch of highway north of that town called the ugliest five miles in Oregon. I mean, it's a little dusty Eastern Oregon town, and there were junk. The reason they called it that was because it was lined with junkyards and and I remember going there to kind of take a look at the place, and it was an August day, and it was about 100 degrees, and the air was full of dust. And Julia and I are kind of looking at each other saying, uh. in fact, we did not hang pictures on the walls of our home for about the first two years because we thought, we're out of here. And we ended up living there for 21 years. <clears throat> and the church was small. And it was in this little building, and um, we got this new pastor, and 
he had a great vision and the church began to grow and we built a new building and and as our as things began to grow he said you know uh, I want to hire an associate but I want to hire somebody from out of the congregation I want to hire somebody who understands the vision we have I want to hire somebody who knows our people and he came to me and we we were really involved we were involved lay people and he came to me and he said, I'd like you to come on staff. And it's like, whew. When I was in college, I used to check out of religion classes because I had to write papers for them, and I didn't want to do that. I remember I got into a philosophy class, and they said, you'll have to write seven papers this semester. And I went straight to the registrar. Her name was Mrs. McMichael. I threw that syllabus on her desk, and I said, get me out of this class. So I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. And it took us, what, months of prayer before God told us, yeah, this is what I want you to do. And we've been doing this ever since. And it's been a great journey and a great life. You know, every detail of... Every detail of your life, God knows. Everything is appropriate in its time. The God who sets eternity in our hearts is the same one who knows every moment and every step. If Christmas tells me anything, Christmas tells me that God and his sovereign timing knows all about you and he knows all about me. And the little insignificant things every day of our lives that we look at, that we don't think about, that sometimes we pass off, some things that we become frustrated by, all work together for his purpose in our lives and for eternity. Listen, nothing stays the same. I think this year has made that really clear. Doors open, doors close. Options today become non-negotiables tomorrow. That's why the Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And if you could sit down, I think, and talk to Mary and Joseph about all the things that were happening in their lives at that first Christmas, I think they would say, you know, if there's anything we learn from Christmas, it's this. When God speaks, listen. Don't miss the moment. Do what he tells you to do. Romans 13, 11 says, Do this because we live in an important time. It is now time for you to wake up from your sleep because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost finished and the day is almost here. So we should stop doing things that belong to darkness and take up the weapons used for fighting in the light. In 2 Corinthians 6, 2, it says, For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And you know what? Some of us think, well, we made a decision today. Um, We know that we'll be socially distanced at church, and, you know, there's mask wearing in there. We have the ability. So I decided to come to church today. Well, you may have made that decision, but it's a divine appointment. It's a divine appointment. So I want to end with this question this morning. What is it God's time for in your life? What is it? 
God's time for in your life. Pray with me. Father, this is a a special season of the year for followers of Jesus Christ, for the church. And we do live in unusual, uncertain times. And you knew this was coming. You were not taken by surprise. And you were at work in all of this. You're at work in our nation. You're at work through the pandemic. You're at work in our world. You're at work in this church. You're at work in our individual lives. And one of my prayers, Father, has been during, the, especially during the pandemic, with all the, you know, the lockdowns and the the lack of person-to-person contact, uh, contact, and you know, you can't shake hands and you can't hug one another anymore, and you have to stay so far apart. And some people aren't even haven't been to any kind of public gathering in months, and. We're wondering, what's this all about? And yet my prayer has been, out of this season of the pandemic, there would come great fruitfulness for the church and the kingdom. And I believe that if that's going to happen, it's going to happen through us, your servants. And so even during this time when we're still restricted in many ways, and then as we move down the road and Things begin to open up again. I think we need to ask ourselves, Lord God, what what is your timing in my life right now? What do you have for me? You know, it may not make sense. It may be inconvenient. Maybe it's frustrating. Maybe it seems all wrong. And yet, Lord God, I think that may have been many of the, the things that Mary and Joseph dealt with. We have to travel to Bethlehem, and Mary's about to have a baby. We don't know a soul there. What are we going to do? God, this seems all wrong, and yet, Lord God, we know in the light of history, in the light of prophecy, it was all right. Your timing is perfect, and your timing is perfect in our lives, and may we take those steps of faith and obedience that we see in the lives of these two faithful servants. Mary and Joseph, because it was a fulfilling of all that Scripture said would be true of the coming of Messiah and fit perfectly in the history of our world. So I believe, Lord God, that whatever it is that you have for us in this time, it will fit perfectly in your plan for our lives. May we be willing to seek your face and ask you, What time is it in my life, Lord God? And I determine to be obedient to whatever you tell me. Thank you, Lord God, for this season when we do celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. What an amazing thing. Bless us as we go from this place today. May we again carry the light and the truth of Christ in our lives and have an impact on a lost and broken world. And I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.